Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here to announce the NDC Sydney Conference, September 17th through 21st. Go to ndcsydney.com to register. Tell them Carl and Richard sent ya. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're uh, getting ready for some fall conferences here, notably uh, Dev Intersection and all that goes with it. It's really fall this time. It's December. So yeah. yeah. Very fall. Are you still calling it fall, though? Well, it's, it's technically our fall show. It's in Vegas. Yeah. You know. It's going to be fall in Vegas in December. Uh, because of certain Microsoft teams, they asked us to push it down a bit, and so we did. It's the first week of December. It's like your last fun thing before you really started getting into Christmas break is go hang in Vegas where it's warm. Right. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be a fun time. And uh, SQL intersection as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I do a plug on Run As Radio for SQL Intersection because at every one of the these shows twice a year, I do a SQL Q&A for an hour with Kim and Paul and a bunch of the other SQL speakers. Mm. And we have the, a whole bunch of attendees. I really like them as someone who cares a lot about, you know, data storage and stuff because they give you sort of a state of affairs. Right. Like, I, I have gone back and listened to a few old ones. It's like people are worrying about different things as time mm. goes on. Yeah. Uh, the complexity of data storage, like not just storing everything in a relational database, that seems to have basically gone mainstream now. Yeah. We're going to have some Mongo. We're going right. to have, you know, some other data storage mechanism. And, of course, the conversation around the cloud is a constant thing now. Well, it's fortuitous that we were talking about that. And it is no accident either because what I've got for Better Know Framework fits right in with this conversation. Oh. So roll the music. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? SQLfiddle.com. Okay. Well, my mom told me if I fiddled with my SQL, I'd go blind. So, <laughs> Well, you know what Fiddler that. is. And yeah. This is like Fiddler for SQL. Interesting. So, like, intercepting SQL communication? No, no. It's just, you just have a place where you can create tables and run any kind of T-SQL against them and mess around with it. And then when you're done, it just goes away. Or you can Neat. save your fiddles and all of that stuff. All right. And it's, uh, oh, and it's got a choice of what it's SQL server do you want to use. So That's right. Defaults to MySQL, but you also got a couple of flavors of Postgres. Yeah. Uh, and Microsoft SQL Server 2017 and Oracle 11G. So look at that. And what I love about this is that, you know, let's say that you want to save some money and you don't want to have to fire up a new version of SQL Azure or get a SQL server going. You just go here with your browser mess around with some stuff and you know bob's your uncle sure no, that's very cool dude yeah it's a place to hack a place to experiment yeah especially if you're trying to learn some sql things you know if you're trying to figure out what how joins are done and or you know how to do foreign keys and stuff like that it's the the, the stuff that you know non-mere mortals do <laughs> well, I also, the fact that I could switch between different flavors is like, hey, this is how it runs on SQL Server. What, what does this look like in Oracle? And, and see how it would behave. So yeah. that's interesting. Very cool. Yeah, neat. Thought you'd like that one. Absolutely. So who's talking to us, Richard? 
grabbed a comment off of show 1441, which we did back in May of 2017, with one John Papa. Never heard of him. Talking about Enterprise, Angular, and Azure, which I also think where we first talked about Angular Mix as well. And this particular comment, and this is going to be embarrassing for John, so I like it even more, comes from (laughs) Mark, who says, fantastic show, guys. Let me be the first to say that John has done amazing things for the Angular community. As one of those community members, I say a big thank you. This show really struck a chord with me as I'm currently leading a front-end team building Enterprise Angular version 4 multi-tenant, multi-region application with .NET Core on the back end and everything hosted in Azure. John is 100% right about how the Angular CLI has removed the friction and ceremony of starting an Angular app. We've also found it a great tool to standardize components, service, and module creation, much like .NET Core scaffolds up your web API stuff. Mm. It also has awesome features like importing your newly created component into the closest module that can trip up a new NG developers, and I've been there and done that. Yep. John also mentions Angular Language Service Extension for VS Code. This is a brilliant tool, which not only provides binding in HTML templates, but will also highlight errors in your template and components prior to running ng-serve and having it blow up in the browser console or your terminal window, as opposed to after you deploy. We're a full four months into development, and admittedly this was a year ago, and really enjoying the experience thus far, and I feel personally that it is a great platform to develop complex enterprise front-ends on John, if you're ever in Australia and on the Gold Coast, which is Australia's version of Miami, I'm sure I owe you many beers for all the angular wisdom bombs. Wisdom bombs. Wisdom bombs. <laughs> you have shared on Pluralsight and Adventures in Angular. Thank you, Obi-Wan. The angular is now strong in this one. <laughs> it's a good one, huh? Yeah. I couldn't read it without John listening in because, you know, you got to embarrass it to some degree. But, hey, you know, he made it different for someone, for, for Mark here. And, Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or via any of your social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. Absolutely. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We select star from tweets where praise equals true. Nice. Are we supposed to use machine learning and do sentiment analysis around that? (laughs) I don't know. It's just a joke. All right. Okay. Maybe it wasn't a a joke. joke. Just (laughs) a joke. All right, here comes John Papa. He's a principal developer advocate with Microsoft, and he's passionate about web and mobile technologies. He often enjoys speaking around the world, is co-host of the popular Adventures in Angular podcast, author of the Angular Style Guide, and many popular Pluralsight courses. You can reach John at johnpapa.net or on Twitter at john underscore papa. Welcome back, John. Hey, guys. Good to see you again, or hear you again. Yeah, good to hear you, too. Although I am looking at your Skype photo, which is you dressed up as Ward Bell, dressed up as Liberace. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, I don't even know what to say about that. I have never (laughs) once compared Ward Bell to Liberace. I've compared him to many things, but that that would not be one of them. No, it's it's actually not. It's more like Liberace's uh, pimp limo driver or something with a fur... (laughs) Coat. Um, Whatever kind of limo driver would Liberace have? <laughs> Maybe we can get that photo and put it on the page afterwards. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll use it as your, as your bio photo. Absolutely. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not my standard bio photo. I've just never changed that in Skype, and maybe I should, but it's become kind of a running joke now. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the man died in 87. So we are talking about somebody who's been dead for more than 20 years. Like, hey, we're old. Certain number of people. Yeah, I guess we're old. There you go. Yeah, we're old. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's no news flash. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. well, you know, I'll give you my my favorite quote of Liberace's, the best quote, and you've used it and not known it was attributed to him. I wish my brother George were here. Not that one. That is his also. No, he's also the guy who first said, I was crying all the way to the bank. Oh, right. Really? That's fascinating. Yeah, when they were complaining about how campy his show was and all that sort of thing. You know, the critics were always, he was a pianist, right? And put on quite a show. And the critics were saying how campy the show was. He says, I cried all the way to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good problems to have, huh? More there bling. You go. Yeah. <laughs> so you getting excited for angle brackets down at Dev Intersection there this December? I am. I am. I'm looking forward to the fall. I'm, I'm actually taking off all of July and August without speaking or doing any kind of conferences at all. So I'm looking forward to that first, but then I kick it into gear again in the fall. So awesome. it's good to take a break once in a while and kind of refresh, do some hardcore coding and, you know, build some awesome stuff. So there's always fresh material and yeah, yeah. it's, it's always good to be able to, to be able to put uh, your, your code behind your, your speaking so you can show real stuff. Yeah. We've got the two big shows. So we've got angular mix, October 10 to 12 which is uh, John's baby, let's be clear. Yeah. And, you know, definitely the heart and soul behind the thing. And a uh, spectacular lineup with that, including Mr. Brad Green coming back again. And then, of course, Dev Intercession we talked about earlier, which is uh, December 3rd to 6th. Mm. Yeah. So we were talking to uh, Glenn Block about Extend, and uh, which is a node-based SaaS solution. And I was thinking about, you know, differences between just firing up node on azure or anywhere else for that matter and uh it's kind of funny now now we're talking about node on azure have you seen that uh that stuff that he's doing i haven't tried it i've heard about it but i have not tried it yet so more just a passing knowledge at this point yeah so what's new in node azure land uh i'll tell you anything if you look at node in the cloud in general it seems like that's become the new here's something out this week right. <laughs> kind of story. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on. And honestly, it's changed so much just in the year and a half I've been back at Microsoft here. Uh, when I got in here, a lot of these services we have today either didn't exist or they were just about to come out. Uh, now, there's so many ways you can launch Node on Azure. It's it's kind of, in, in some ways, it's, it's fascinating. In other ways, it's almost overwhelming because you're like, I just want to get my app up in the cloud. So what's right. what's the right way? What's the recommended way for me is a question we get a lot. So what is the right way? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I know the answer. It depends. It depends. Yes. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> I See, I told you uh, we're old. We're talking about depends now. Oh, no. <laughs> Jeez. I, I see new sponsors in your future. <laughs> I <laughs> I see them all. <laughs> Brought to you <laughs> by Metamucil. <laughs> It used to be Geritol. Now it's like insure. Well, once you get enough fiber in your diet, the next step is to kind of figure out what you mean by deploy your app to the cloud. Oh. And if you ask a bunch of Node developers, it's it's. I think the answer they give you will be different. Some people like to deploy with like a CLI tool where it's like a one-step 
um, like a, this great tool called Now. Uh, Netlify has got one. Mm-hmm. Surge is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's about a dozen others too, where you literally just go to a folder in your terminal or your command prompt and just say now or whatever the command might be for that tool. Yeah. And it looks at what you've got in your package JSON, figures out the dependencies, wraps up all your code and sends it up to a cloud server. And within, you know, a minute, maybe even seconds in some cases, you've got a cloud server running with a URL. That's great. There's more and more of these things coming out, you oh, know, yeah. sort of infrastructure button push things. Yeah. And Azure has one of those now too, where we've, um, We've been working with the app services team, and it, it's all them. It's it's not, I say we, but it's really all them. <laughs> they have created a, um, I don't know what the right word for it, so I'll just use my words. It's like a shortcut for the CLI where you can type in AZ web app up. Hmm. So Azure is AZ, that's a CLI. Web app is what you're creating because mm-hmm. you could be creating, you know, one of 100 different services. And then the next command is up. And that will basically do what I just said, um, It'll take your app, your node packages, et cetera, and put them up in a cloud inside of Azure and give you a URL. And then if that point you can go play with it through VS Code or through the Azure portal or whatever your favorite is. Um, that's one of the most fascinating and interesting ways to deploy to the cloud these days that I see in Azure. And I've been really enjoying that side. Now, Azure CLI is a uh, NPM product it, it deployment or is it, is it uh, all GitHub now? Where do you get Azure CLI from? Yeah, so there, there's a, a great web page, and I can put them in the show notes if, if that's helpful, sure. on how to get the Azure CLI. Basically, there's a couple things you have to install to get that. Once you have the Azure CLI, there's an extension that you can add to it, which adds in the web app up features. So the Azure CLI itself is like its own platform that you can install and then run it on Windows or Linux or Mac or whatever you want to do. And then you add in this, uh, this small extension for AZ Web App Up. And really what AZ Web App Up is doing is it's saying, hey, instead of making you, for those familiar with Azure, you can define and configure the heck out of everything. So you can say, I want this size server with this many CPUs and this kind of a pricing plan. I want to put it in India or Northern Europe or Western US. You can define all these things. Uh, AZ Web App Up just says, I'll do that later. You just put that up in the cloud for now. Let me just see this thing running. So you don't have to pass all those flags in. Right. But it doesn't limit you either. So the main thing is you're just giving it access to your Azure credentials so it can throw the site up there. Yeah, yeah. Which is super useful if, I mean, this is not a full CI process, right? But there's a development cycle we all go through where sometimes we just want to see the thing up there first. Right. See give what's me, happening. Give me my hello world ASP.NET page, right? Like that mm. same sort of effect. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the first thing I do, I love CI and I use CI a lot, especially in large enterprises I've worked with. But I don't, my first mode is not, let me go make sure I've got all my branches right, my branching strategy, my versions in GitHub, my CI tools, my unit testing, my end-to-end, and then let's figure out where I'm going to put it in Azure and all the different settings. Honestly, the first thing I do is say, let's see if I throw spaghetti in the wall if this thing's going to stick. And that's what this kind of a tool is great at. And it doesn't stop you there either. You can then migrate and then grow into the rest of it. So I like this as a, a great first step into using Node on Azure. Sounds good. Do we need to sort of talk about the fundamentals of Node a bit? Because I think anybody coming at this from an IIS perspective, like it's almost the anathema of the Swiss Army knife that is IIS. Yeah, there's that's a good point, Richard. There's some basic things about Node that I think really help define 
what the problem statements are for getting to the cloud or for you know just developing or deploying these apps. Uh, first itself, Node, when you run it as a web server, a lot of people use Express. It's by far the most used package out there, at least right. it's been for years, that you can use. And Express effectively adds in the web server aspect um, that you can use with Node. So a lot of people run Node with Express to launch itself. But the way Node works is you've got all these middleware packages that you can pull in to add features. So like IIS, we'll use that example since you mentioned it, it's, it's a web server that kind of comes with all these features built in. Right. And then with Node, you only get what you ask for. So you're not getting security and logging and the ability to serve JSON and HTML and all the stuff or consume it JSON out of the box. You pull in middleware and you tell it how to behave. Uh, the nice side about that is you're never getting extra stuff that you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. The downside is you have to make sure you know what you're asking for. Sure. This is also the way ASP.NET Core is kind of going over the last couple of years, too. Just right. pull in what you need with middleware. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's sort of this off by default mentality as opposed to on by default mentality. But now you yeah. have to know what you're asking for. Yeah, and when, when you do that, uh, the challenge comes in. And you think about ASP.NET with NuGet, uh, Node, we have NPM, which are just packages. You have to make sure when you deploy to the cloud that the packages that you want are deployed to the cloud as well. Yeah. And one of the struggles is, okay, let's say you put together an application with node.js and using whatever on the front end is fine. Uh, it could just be pure HTML even. If you do that and you have a bunch of packages, do you want your packages to be zipped up on your local machine and sent to the cloud? Or right. would you prefer that the cloud actually installs the MP packages up there instead. Mm-hmm. And to kind of answer that, I think you then have to think about, well, what's the consequences of both ways? If you take it locally and you zip it up and you bring it up to the cloud, some packages actually are operating system dependent. Uh-huh. And some of them also, how do you know the version of Node and NPM that are running in the cloud are also the same versions of Node and the package manager running in your machine? Right. You do have some so, control over that, though, right, in Azure? Yeah, you do. You can say, basically, look, this is the version I've got here. Let's go ahead and set that up in Azure. Right. But what if you've got a team now? You know, and Richard's got Windows, and you've got um, Debian Linux, and I've right. got Mac. Yeah. You just don't know what's going to be there. So another option is to just say, you know what, let, let the cloud do that for you so yeah. you're not worrying about these kind of things. Well, when you link to other things that are running in the cloud, of course, now you have dependencies that may or may not change, right? I mean, that's the same with JavaScript everywhere. If you're linking to something that exists on another domain, you're, you're susceptible to, uh, to whatever happens over there. Yeah, you really want to control your dependencies is really the, the right. story of it, right? Knowing what those look like. And it's just good to, I'm not trying to scare anybody, I'm just trying to say that this is things you have to think about when you're deploying any app, whether it's ASP.NET or Node, sure. or whatever. But I mean, what I appreciate, not that I'm a Node fan, right? Like JavaScript has never been my first language of choice. I would really rather code in C Sharp. But what I like about Node's philosophy is this configuration as code mindset that everything is explicitly turned on. Like you talk about that cross-platform problem. It's like the list that you make to make a Node app work is the same problem on every platform so they can see what needs to be in place. There's no secrets. Yeah, it's really like a grocery list. You know, you create your package JSON file, which tells you what the dependencies are, and there's even developer and versus runtime dependencies. 
You can even specify in there your node platform version, your NPM version, things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That way, when you give it to an Azure, it can say, oh, you know, we can inspect that kind of stuff and say, this is what you want. I'll go ahead and put them there. Yeah, this is a manifest of everything you're going to need. Yep. That's the same thing that happens with a lot of the cloud providers when you, let's say you're not going straight from your desktop to the cloud uh, and you want to have at least a little bit more control, like you, you push to GitHub and whenever you go to the master branch, perhaps... Mm-hmm. That's when the master branch will kick off a, a Git hook over in Azure, and then it'll grab that stuff and run NPM install for you. So you're still getting the same thing. It still has to get those packages, those dependencies, regardless of if you go direct from your local machine or through GitHub. Or if you go through CI, then you got you know a lot more control over how that happens, too. Right. Hey, hey John, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a SaaS monitoring platform for cloud infrastructure applications and logs. Datadog gives you total visibility into application performance for Node.js, Java, Python, and more. And it integrates seamlessly with more than 200 infrastructure technologies, including Microsoft Azure and other cloud providers. With sophisticated alerting, distributed tracing, and log management, Datadog helps you get a handle on the performance of all your applications and infrastructure. Start a free 14-day trial today, and Datadog will send you a free T-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here, Richard Campbell there, and John Papa down there in Florida. And... Uh, <laughs> Hey, I, you can run Azure Functions uh, JavaScript. There's a JavaScript experience for Azure Functions. What's the? Why would you do that over running Node? Why would I do it over running Node? That's a great question. There's so Azure Functions is the Azure product name for serverless technology. Yeah, which a lot of people know the words like Lambda is one of the uh, one of the earliest versions of that, which came out of AWS, Amazon's products. Yep. And the idea is, is this. You just want to write a function that does something. Maybe it's connecting two apps together. Uh, maybe it's just a simple HTTP function where you know, you're know you asking for data from somewhere. Uh, maybe it's an IoT connector, which connects an IoT device to something else. And you don't want to go ahead and set up a server, well, the infrastructure, uh, the operating system, decide if it's IES or Node, and then set up like a web API or a node with Express. You know, think about ASP.NET or Node. There's a lot of stuff you have to do before you even write the code that says, hey, I just wanted a list of customers. Uh, function says, we'll set up all that for you. You just write the function. Right. Yeah. And so is, there, is it so much Node then that it is just programming functions in JavaScript? Mostly, yeah. It's really more JavaScript. Uh, although it's it's truly Node because you can pull in NPM packages if you want to into right. that, because you may want to do it, but you don't have to set up the web server in this case. It's just let me write my functions and my APIs, and you know there's security and there's ways you can tap into databases from it. And so there's some really cool things you can do, but it allows you to focus less on the infrastructure and, and the platform, uh, and it only bills you if you do a consumption model based on what you use. And it can scale up or scale down dynamically that way, too. John, it sounds like Bella Lugosi just came for dinner at your place. Yeah, that you heard that, didn't thunderclap, you? Thunderclap, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life in Florida, man. Yeah. Yeah, the afternoons in Florida. We didn't want to startle anybody. 
So what are the other ways that we can use, uh, that we can deploy Node on Azure? I think one of the more interesting ones that I've really started enjoying is using Docker. And there's a couple of reasons I go this way. Let me kind of explain the problem it solves for me first. I wasn't a big Docker fan for a while, and it wasn't so much I didn't like it as I just didn't really understand where I wanted to use it mm. or where it was adding value to me. It was solving problems that I wasn't necessarily personally having at the time. So I, you know, I learned how to use it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And it kind of just popped in the back of my mind. And then more and more, I started seeing that apps I was deploying were running into these issues where the version of NPM on the cloud server was different than the one on my local machine or the CI server. Huh. And I just like, you know, this works on my machine stuff is getting old. I've been doing it for 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Been there. And Docker just became so easy to say, hold on a sec. I literally just handed, and this is a moment of revelation for me. I handed my CI team a piece of paper. It was actually a, a doc uh, that said, here are the seven steps to install this app. And then I thought about this for a second. I'm like, that could be a Docker file. Mm. Why can't I just say, use this OS with this version of Node, this version of NPM, mm. run these commands to NPM install and crank up my server, copy the files over. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was telling them to do. I'm like, why am I doing this that way? Which is still error prone because, honestly, a lot of times the CI team was, would call me up and go, hey, all the teams are complaining is such and such broke. Why did it break, John? We didn't mm. change anything. Mm. And then I go look with them. Turns out that somebody upgraded Node somewhere or upgraded NPM or, right. you know. Um, this way with Docker, none of that matters. You just tell it in my container, this is what it is. And it just always works all the time. And there's no more of that. So the big thing with containers is that version protection. Yes. That each, each the versions of things in the container are specific to the container. You don't have to, you're not thinking in context of a machine. Exactly. And it sounds so simple. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But until you've gone through this and had these kind of problems, like the place I used to work, literally this happened a dozen times until we kind of went down this road with Docker because we had to get Docker into our CI process. But right. There's nothing like having 50 teams call you up and say, hey, um, all of our stuff's broken. Everything What'd broke. you do? Yeah, and, we bl- <laughs> and we blame you. Yeah. <laughs> well, then the yeah, argument goes, too, of, uh, you know, what about what about just the single developer shop or the five-person shop? Is Docker useful there? And Yeah, I mean, you have the same problem. Why would you want to even deal with it? Docker has gotten so simple now to simply create a container with a Docker file that um, it just makes sense to use that, whether you're a one-person shop or you're a thousand-person shop. The yeah, the IT guy in me looks at this the container situation these days and says, "Why aren't we running all software on the desktop in containers? Like, when does that suddenly become the client technology? Because I'm tired of battling interactions between apps on desktops." Yeah, it's it really is a interesting interesting story, and I think what really made Docker easy in a lot of ways was. You know, the, the Docker files now, when you use tools like VS Code, wherever you're deploying your Docker file, whether it's locally in your machine or somewhere else uh, into a cloud or CI system, uh, tools like VS Code will let you generate the Docker files for you. They'll actually intelligently configure it. Uh, you know, you tell them whether it's Node or Go or you know, .NET, and then it'll help you build them 
and then run them and debug them locally and then even push them up to like Docker Hub or Azure's container registry for you. So you could do everything right from a tool like VS Code, which to me made life so easy. And, you know, you were just talking about functions too, because I think that sort of two new hotnesses in working in cloud are the container approach and the serverless approach. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, how do you pick between those? Well, I don't think you have to pick either. (laughs) That's where uh, I think you can build your containers. Just picking some technology. Let's say your Mm -hmm. app, uh, thinking tangibly, you've got an app written in Vue or Angular React, whatever Mm, your favorite framework is. And you're serving that through something like a Node Express server. You could build a container that does that uh, and do all that with Docker and then push that up through VS Code up to like the Azure Container Registry, which is behind a um, sign-in. And then you could deploy that to one or more app services or if you want. And if you really want to go crazy, you can use Kubernetes and stuff, but you don't have to. Right. And then what if that app wants to talk to a bunch of APIs or connect to maybe in your back end, you've got a SQL server and an Oracle database and a MySQL one, uh, maybe a Cosmos DB one. Mm-hmm. And all of these are required for running the app. Maybe instead of writing all that code in Express inside your container, you could create serverless functions which then aggregate and handle all the database interactions nice. and then access that from your Docker container from up inside That's of That's a great Azure. insight, John. I really mm. appreciate that, especially, you know, because the container stuff is quite platform agnostic, right? I could be running that uh, over on AWS, so forth. But if I'm using yep. Cosmos on the back end, I know I'm running that in Azure. So mm. writing Azure functions to do the Cosmos calls makes total sense to me. Right. It's platform bound. That's not a bad thing. You wanted that capability. And the pieces that may run in other places, other configurations, they can live in container. Yeah, and you can still write functions that talk to third-party services too. So it just allows you to have one place to put all your your APIs, for example. And I'm only Mm -hmm. talking functions as APIs here because you can do other things with functions too. Sure, yeah. Uh, Yeah. But I've also seen, uh, like if you go to the Azure portal now, there's a new button in there. I'm forgetting the exact name of it. I should know this. But there's a new button when you create functions about uh, using Docker with functions as well, which allows you to create your own containers of functions. Containers so, of functions. I mm, like it. There's uh, new ways to do everything, just as you thought you understood the surface. Well, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to listen in on Marlon Brando writing code in the afterlife. I could have been a container. <laughs> oh, no, no, jeez. Oh, <laughs> what? He lives in the cloud, you know? He's, uh, he's true, up there. He in the clouds. All right. Because he's, yeah. he's dead. I, right. That's, <laughs> that's why it's not funny. It could have um, been a container. Could have been uh. a container. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. 
The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots is available as part of the company's Telerik, ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is James Doran. Congratulations, James. James Doran. Duran, Duran. Nice. One of those. Now, here's some clappers. Duran, Duran. And, uh, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, James gets that $200 Amazon card courtesy of Progress Telerik. And if you'd like to join the fan club, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you'll be a member. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And also, it's our guest's turn now. John, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Does it have to stay within the $5,000? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you want to win from us, I suppose. But <laughs> but we, you're oh. not the first person to say I put a deposit down on a Tesla. Or buy a mirror, you know. A mirror? A tire. Of a Tesla. Oh, oh, sorry. I was like, I was thinking like a mirror, like in your bathroom. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, no. Rear view mirror. Wow. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, geez. I don't know. I've got, I've got pretty much everything I want and need. Maybe I would give that to start up some kind of a, um, to one of these great diversity inclusion groups that are out there for helping kind of ramp up our getting new people into, into our technology. Awesome. Nice. That's a great way to spend five the, grand. Uh, the cloud developer advocates are quite a diverse bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. There's uh, I don't know what the exact numbers are because I don't track that kind of stuff, but we are from all walks of life, cultures, backgrounds, and technologies. Very cool. It's cool. It's uh, it's working, I think. Like I think there's been a lot more effort in general with folks to do a better job of, uh, of making sure you get those different viewpoints, just the way that people think differently and come at problems differently. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, obviously, me being on the team, I think it's working. <laughs> and I'm biased on that. But a great example, I, I was thinking the other day, we were talking with some folks, and we were thinking about, hey, we want to make sure that everybody's using this thing in Azure, uh, you know, and how we, we understand how they're using it and what their problems are. And one of the things we all did is we kind of stepped back and said, you know, we really want to know how this is working outside of our bubble. You know, everybody mm -hmm. lives in a bubble. Mm -hmm. Sure. I live in the JavaScript world bubble, for example. And, you know, there's people who live in their own technology bubbles or their own cultural based upon where they live in the world mm. uh, or just the people that they talk to or even on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's very hard to get out of those bubbles. And I think that's one of the most fun parts of this job is really trying to step back and go, okay, maybe I'm only seeing it being used this way. Like the ways I talked about Azure with Node uh, today with Docker or Direct Deploy or GitHub or CI. Mm -hmm. But there's other people using it in other ways and really going out and listening and observing. 
that's the most fun part of our job and bringing it back back in. Visual Studio Code has support for node debugging, doesn't it? It does, and it's it's fantastic. It's it's so nice because I remember six years ago using Node and having to crank up a Node debugger through Terminal. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Just today, it's light years ahead. Now you just press a button and it's debugging, and you set breakpoints, and mm. so much easier. And uh, has anybody got JavaScript debugging working in Visual Studio proper? <laughs> uh, I know it's working. I don't use Visual Studio much anymore. I know it works. <laughs> it's just, uh, it seems to be jumping through some hoops just to get that working, in my experience anyway. They tried a few times. You know, that's the big thing. It's like, there were a few stabs at how to make that work well. Yeah. Yeah, I can't really speak to that, but because uh, I don't use Visual Studio much anymore. Right. Not because I don't like it, but because I use a Mac purely. So You're in that bubble. Right. Yeah, that's my bubble. My yep. bubble is I, I live on a Mac and I, I live in a VS Code. You're living in the Electron bubble, which is interesting. You know, now that now that GitHub has been bought by Microsoft, you know, I'm, I don't think a whole lot's going to happen on the on the source control side, but what happens to Electron is an interesting conversation. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, be curious to see. I know Nat is, uh, he's leading up that area. He'd be a good person to yeah. get on your show to talk more about that. Yeah, uh, I couldn't think of a better guy. When I heard it was going to be Nat at GitHub, I'm like, yep. that totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. Yeah. Well, we got Phil Hack on right away because everybody loves Phil. Poor <laughs> oh, Nat. Yeah. I mean, great. the guy's plate is so full. I'm loath to grab him. I wanted to give him a few months to get his feet under him and then bring him on the show to say, okay, what are you doing? Yeah, and he's he's all about do the right thing. So I, I have a lot of confidence this is going to oh, totally. work really well. His Yeah, his Ask Me Anything on Reddit was phenomenal. Just like yeah. read so well. Yeah, Just yeah. good thinking all around. I mean, Okay, I have nothing bad to say about that, other than maybe it should have been done the first day. But he got there, and, and they did the right things. No, no question. Yeah, it kind of uh, it took a lot of us by surprise, too, that that whole thing went down. I mean, very happy about it, but yeah, uh, it was interesting to see people's reactions, too, on the internet. Yeah, well, it, about. it did leak. So, you know, the storm sort of the weekend before the announcement was interesting. Yeah. It, people were all over them. There's people who still think old Microsoft. And people who knew about the new Microsoft are looking at those guys going, have you not been paying attention? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, somebody said the other day, and I don't have the stats to, to prove it, so take it with a grain of salt, but that the number one and two open source projects are now Microsoft with GitHub and VS Code once this deal right. closes. So yeah. that's kind of interesting, too. Very. It's very interesting. I wonder how many people's repulsion towards JavaScript is simply old battle scars of old versions of JavaScript. And it, it always helps to go and look at node code and say, hey, we're not living in a DOM here. The language looks very different when you're not thinking in DOM in JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah, it is very different because node node is not like browser development, right? Right. You're, there is no DOM and you can have one. I mean, you can have whatever you want in anything. Sure. <laughs> but sure. Yeah. You, can, you can have every, it's your foot, right? Take every bad idea you want. You can make it happen. JavaScript is here to hurt you. Yeah, that's true. TypeScript makes it a little more bearable, um, I find. Um, I, I want to go back to, to VS Code for a little bit too, because this is not my bubble. I'm not, I'm a Visual Studio developer, but I also do JavaScript. So, um, tell me some more about the the Node uh, features in VS Code. Well, one of the greatest pieces about VS Code is the extensibility model. So there's this great marketplace with five or 6,000 extensions now 
that you can add into VS Code. And mm. the whole model of VS Code is they want to keep it light and fast. So they're not pulling everything in. Yeah. The intent of this was not to make another Visual Studio for Mac. That's a different model, right? Right. Visual Studio does everything for you, and it's great at that. Visual Studio Code is we're lightweight, we're fast, we're an editor. And then these extensions pull in features. So there's a team at Microsoft uh, working with uh, various people, uh, Chris Diaz, Matt Hernandez, a bunch of other great people who are building these extensions that allow VS Code to kind of pull in a little bit of what you're used to in Visual Studio, Carl. Like, I want to deploy an Azure function. Or I want to create an Azure function locally in my machine, mm-hmm. scaffold the project, run it locally, and debug it locally, and then deploy it to Azure and debug it without ever leaving VS Code. So there's some really yeah, cool extensions. Like Visual that Studio. Do that. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's bringing a little bit of those tasteful integrations, and it's by choice, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to decide. So they have one for functions. They have one for Docker, which I love because it makes. I used to memorize Docker commands in the CLI, and now I just use the uh, uh, VS Code menus basically with my keyboard to pull them in. You can also right click; that works too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you get there's one for uh, Cosmos DB, which is great because then you can link to your Cosmos database, you can create new ones, you can run queries right inside of VS Code with uh, uh, using your, your Mongo commands. Or mm. It's just fascinating how much you can do now right from VS Code with these extensions. And there's one for storage. So you could like deploy a static site that just came out last week. Mm. Uh, so you can right-click on your website and just say, hey, deploy this to Azure Storage. And, you know, it'll run on a website. So you've got deployment to Azure in VS Code. You've got source control integration in VS Code. Is, at some point, is VS Code going to be as big as Visual Studio? Big in terms of size or users? Uh, I don't mean users. I mean, just in terms of, yeah, weight, heavy. I mean, the whole reason that we like VS Code is that it's lightweight and it doesn't have a lot of features. Exactly. You think that it's the feature creep is inevitable? I don't think so. I think something they're very conscious of, and I'm downloading it right now, and it's 68 megs still. Wow. Yeah. So, I guess the big thing I mean, here is that there's nothing in by default. You add all this yourself. If it's big and heavy, it's because you choose to add it. Right. You know, a lot of these extensions, they're just tapping into the APIs that are available through the Azure Cloud to do this Node stuff with Azure specifically. Mm. Uh, the Docker stuff also does it in Docker Hub and, you know, a lot of Docker commands. So you need Docker locally, obviously, to do that. It almost but, seems uh, like a, a restart, you know, of, of the Visual Studio experience from scratch, doing things right the first time and not having the backward compatibility uh, albatross to worry about. Yeah, I think it's I think it's about fulfilling the needs of different personas. You know, some people love an, what I call an IDE. They want everything just to be there and just to work and have a button that does it. And that's perfectly fine. I lived in that world for 15 plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the world you're living in, Carl. And it's just the one where we are used to, right? So yeah. if, if it works, yeah. there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And then there's people who are starting to go the other direction of, you know, just pull it in as I need it. Um, this... Right. VS Code really just gives Microsoft a way to engage with that persona, which, let's be honest, a couple of years ago, I wasn't using any Microsoft products anymore yeah, right. because I was using, you know, Atom and Sublime and Terminal and everything on a Mac, and there was nothing on Microsoft on a Mac. Right. Yeah, and I suppose it's a, a, a really good way to do it as well because, 
it, it means that you can start, well, it's kind of like the on by default thing, right? The off by default thing. Yeah. You can start with exactly what you need and build your experience up from there, which is great. You can't do that with Visual Studio right now. You have to go in and turn things off. Yeah, and you remember, was it a couple of years ago, the Visual Studio team, might have been four or five years ago, they removed a bunch of buttons from the toolbar? Yep. Uh, I forget how long ago it was, but it's towards um, probably 2012-ish. I think they had something like 40 or 50 buttons in the toolbar, and they reduced it down to like 19. And it was amazing how much easier it was to use at right. that point, at least right. when I looked at it. But just a different persona. Again, it's neither right nor wrong. It's just how to how to reach everybody. Right. Now, do you find you run different personas of, of VS Code yourself, depending on the project you're working on, different sets of extensions and so forth? Like, is there a sense of a template of a combination of tools for a particular job? Uh, that's a great question. So there's, yes, mostly. I, I, I have two different versions of VS Code in my machine. I have Stable and Insiders. Uh, and I use both of those, probably not for their intended purpose. I use Insiders for my coding and for the kind of stuff I work with. But sometimes I use the stable version because you can put them side by side and I set up the extensions in that one for when I like go visit somebody or do specific conference or a kind of a talk with a customer to show them more what would their setup look like. Uh, so it allows me on the same machine just to have two different personas to be able to, to work through things. And I share those out there too. There's a great extension called uh, Setting Sync, which uh, I forget the name of the gentleman who wrote it, so forgive me there. But Setting Sync is an amazing extension written by somebody in the community who uh, it allows you to basically sync up all your settings, your extensions, your keyboard shortcuts, your preferences, your color schemes, everything. Uh, and then you can share those in a gist, basically. It looks at a gist ID, uh, nice. which makes it fascinating. Yeah. And easy. Yeah. Sorry, I can't gush enough about VS Code. I just think it's the best <laughs> tool that's come out in the last five to 10 years by any company. That's great. But I think Carl's hit on this thing here, which is what if you had a chance to rethink it and you wanted to be cross-platform and you wanted to think cloud first? Like there's so much of what's happened at Microsoft in the past few years that is trying to be cloud first. So what is .NET Core but a, a cloud first version of .NET? Mm. And, and VS Code is wearing very much that same mantle. Yeah, I think it's it's great. And it takes a lot. I mean, it really, do you remember when VS Code came out, how many people, and we were in that room together, Richard and Carl, yep. when it was released and announced, how many people were just stunned that Microsoft would do something like this? Yeah. Right. It really was amazing. Yeah. Wow, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's four years. Build 2014. And all yeah. those, it literally came too fast. It was about three hours of bang, 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 bang. And Anders up there pushing the button to deploy Roslyn into GitHub, like all of those things at once. Yeah. And at, at that point, it was little more than a code editor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The extensibility was not there at the release. And that was the biggest thing I got criticized for. And Eric Gamma and Chris Dias kept on saying, look, it's coming, it's coming. But, you know, we wanted to get the product out there and then kind of figure out what does an extensibility model look like by asking the community. So... I think they did everything the right way. I, I really do. John, you're so heavily into the web dev space. What's your view on Blazor? 
I think blazer is, uh, it's great to wear when you go out to a light dinner with a casual pair of jeans. (laughs) Hey, I'm the funny guy on this show, dude. (laughs) Sorry. It's just too easy sometimes with these names Uh, that we have in technology. (laughs) Well, let's face it with, yeah, with your shoulders, man, you rock a blazer. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, but seriously, I think I think it's great because it's really built on top of WebAssembly, right? And right. If you put it in a nutshell, what problem is this solving? It's solving, and I'm thinking WebAssembly in general. It's solving the ability to bring people who are experts at other languages beyond JavaScript and bring them to the web, right? In a fast and performant way, and yeah. that's the promise of WebAssembly. So one of the people doing that, obviously, is the C Sharp teams. Yeah, and that's through Blazor. So I think for people who have been doing C Sharp for whether it's one year or thirty years, if that's your cup of tea and that's what you want to do, mm. Blazor gives you an opportunity to do that. Sure, sure. but you're also seeing now Google's implementing a version to Go with Wasm as well. Like, yeah, you are going to see other languages just available. Although, you know, have you ever done View Source on a Blazor page? It's weird to just see a group of DLLs being called. Like, I don't know how it, this better be for an internal apps only because SEO ain't gonna work. <laughs> yeah, it's reminding me of the Silverlight days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're ding. We, I think we said that first, friend. I'm pretty sure we did yeah. after Sanderson showed that thing at NDC. Geez, two years ago now, we were just bug eyed. That's yeah. a, that's the closest I've ever seen to David Fowler's head actually exploding. <laughs> And I think the one thing that's important to point out about Blazor is that, or WebAssembly in general, is I think it's easy to get caught up in the, well, you know, we'll do that. We won't do JavaScript. Or no, JavaScript's going to win. There's not going to be WebAssembly. Right. There's plenty of room for all of this stuff to live. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah I see no problem there at all. I think it's actually good for both sides. Agreed. Well, you know, bit by, on the IT side, we're looking at this idea that the browser is the security profile for me as an IT guy to say, I allow this browser to run on this machine in these constraints. And now as an application developer, you could say, can you live in that container, essentially? This yeah. is sort of a one-size-fits-all smart client container. Between progressive web apps and web assembly, you should be able to do just about anything you need to do in the language of your choice. Yeah, progressive web apps are, are amazing. PWAs, I love those. We should do a whole show on that someday. That's just a yeah. We've addressed topic. it a few times. It's we getting have, more interesting yeah. as I'm seeing. Once you see the Safari guys jump on board, then you can really, oh, yeah. you know, they are the recalcitrant ones, right? Like I, the Edge and Google go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then the Mozilla guys come and go. Okay, we'll do this. But boy, once Apple finally caves on something and allows it to exist in Safari, you know, it's now this is going to be real. Do they really have any incentive to innovate on Safari though? I they mean, other really than don't. security they, reasons? Well, they have announced uh, earlier this year the intention to allow it. So mm-hmm. huh. this is the stuff that I think is the, is the final, as you mentioned, Richard, it's the final straw to really make these things move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. because Apple really does not have strong incentives to do it. It means when they do, it's because they're at the point where people are saying that I cannot use Safari. Like right. I have said publicly, Safari is the new IE6. Yep. In the sense that it is popular and not compliant with standards. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating how the browsers seem to leapfrog who who's the one in leading versus who's the one kind of falling behind in features yeah. and you know. Well, I feel I. like the Chrome the Chrome <laughs> team has been in the lead for a long time. The Edge team has done a good job playing ball and and sort of keeping up, dealing with their own. So you know they got that restart and it was kind of a big struggle to, for a while to get yeah. there. But Chrome's now got the problems that IE had. You know. Yep. They get they're too big. They're too heavy. They're you know people pop open their task manager and see seventy copies of flipping Chrome running. Yeah, like now what are you doing? What's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> well, to me, the biggest inflection point in the browser was when most of the browsers went to that evergreen model, where it's constantly updating for you, yeah. as opposed to the old model, which was you're stuck on IE six for ten years, yeah. right? Yeah. So ha- being evergreen to me is what changed the game and made this stuff even possible. Well, and it's just, you know, and I deal over on the run-ass side with large organizations that block that evergreen behavior because they yep. are afraid. You know, this is part of their, their they have apps. They have IE6-dependent apps to this day, you know, mm-hmm. or, and they don't want them to break. Like, the IE team served the enterprise and to this day still does. Like, IE11 has every single interpreter except for IE6 for various reasons, from 5.5 on, because that's the nature of the beast inside of some of these big enterprises. They have old apps that are important. Yeah, you're running an ActiveX app, and bam, you've got to be looking at one of those older browsers. Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, that's just sort of reality. And it, it, and they're always behind firewalls and things. Like, they are just not visible to the rest of the world. And I'm not hiding it from, from an embarrassment perspective or anything. It's just like this... These guys run these apps for 10, 15, 20 years, and they aren't being developed anymore, but they're still important to the organization. Yeah. So we, we've got to kind of have solutions to this stuff. But I don't know, I'm really excited where we are right now in terms of web development. It's just there's an awful lot of brown field mm. to get there. I think what you're really, and kind of wrapping up this whole discussion we're having, I think, is, is I try to tell my team and a lot of people I meet in the community and myself almost every day that I, I in, interact with folks Remind yourself that what you see is not indicative of the entire development landscape. Yeah. You know, it's that bubble again. Because when you're at a conference, you're talking to people who are allowed to come to the conference, who wanted to come to the conference, or were made Mm -hmm. to. But they're the tip of the iceberg for the people who didn't come and weren't able to be there. And there's a lot of folks at these companies, not just large enterprises, but small companies too, don't get to go out. Or don't get on Twitter. Don't get up on Stack Overflow. Yeah. So we have to keep that in mind that not everybody is trying to use the latest thing. Mm-hmm. John, before we let you go, I know we hinted and talked a little bit about Angular Mix that's going on in October, but can you talk a little bit about uh, about that and specifically some of the things that you're going to be doing? Uh, so yeah, Angular Mix is going to be fun. It's it's right around the corner for me, which I love. Thank you, Richard, <laughs> right here <laughs> yeah. in Orlando. <laughs> yeah. Universal Studios Orlando, and yeah. uh, it's going to be fun. It's at uh, it's at a great location. It's right next to the park, so we can go into there. But what I like about this is it's kind of that mixture of uh, enterprise meets Angular meets Node. And we've got some new speakers coming this year too. We've got the you know the Dan Wallines of the world. Well, at least one Dan Walleen of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, and if you haven't met Dan or actually spoken to Dan or heard him speak, you have to. The guy is just a phenomenal, phenomenal presenter uh, and a very good friend of mine. And 
what I like about this year, too, is we've got new speakers coming. And some of them that I'm excited about are people like Simona Coton, who works on my team. Uh, she's just amazing. Uh, Maxim Salnikov, who is like the PWA expert out there in the third-party world. Awesome. Uh, he's fantastic. And then uh, Chloe Condren, which uh, she's just, I don't know, she, I've learned about her over the last year or so, her speak at NG Atlanta and another conference, and I was just really impressed by her speaking and, and the topics. So we've got some great people coming, and I'm excited to see uh, uh, Angular 7 should be out around that time. Kind of excited yeah. to see what comes out in that, too. Wow, and it couldn't well, be Stephen a more Fluin, fun. who I've gotten to have spent some little time with, is now the you know lead of Dev Relations for for Angular, yep. and uh, they, the pace that those guys are putting in putting new features and capabilities in Angular, like it's it's something. There's some of those abstracts that are marked TBD because we just don't know yet. We don't know everything that's going to be delivered by by October. Yeah, you know what the my favorite new feature of Angular 6 was, which came out a couple months ago, it solves this problem. Yeah. Hey, I'm on Angular 2, and I want to get to Angular 6. How do I get there? They have a very simple instruction now where you can update using the CLI, and it will actually walk you through and, in many cases, just update your code. Nice. To make it work with the version compatibility. And I did 30 projects last night. It took me three hours of 30 projects to walk through it one at a time. Wow. And it's they all work. It's it's not just about the language, it's about the tooling. Yes. The tooling and to be fair, Angular, Vue, and React, they all have really good CLI tools. And right. to me, I wouldn't use a front-end framework these days without a CLI. Well, it just suddenly hits me. The conversation we just had over the hour is so much about the tooling around languages. It's yep. it's re it's it's a thing we deal with every day. Things that make our lives easier. I gotta I gotta read one more session from Angular Mix. Because it even says at the beginning of the description it should be read in a deep theater guy voice. And it's Alyssa Nichols' talk. In a world where internet speeds can reach up to 6 megabits a second and cows reign supreme, <laughs> one developer stands alone to discover the simplest way to cache everything. Join her on this epic journey fraught with lag and peril where she'll battle config files and caching external assets, all the while dealing with the conflict of freshness versus cache-first styles looming ominously over her every move. Will her love for cows be forever destroyed by a slow network? Or will she embrace the challenge and overcome the lag of the server worker power? Find out at the <laughs> Angular Mix Talk, Service Workers and Cows, a love story. <laughs> you know, Alyssa, when we reviewed those contents, Alyssa just nailed it with that abstract. We were just the laughing. Best. It's awesome. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Indeed. Well, you missed my favorite title session. Uh -huh. A Boy, a Sugar Glider, and the TSA. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Clark. Funny. And I'm not even going to read the ad. I'm not going to read the description of it because I want you all to go to the website and check it out. Yeah. This, I've seen him give this session and it's just, oh my, it's good. It's really good. It's all about security on the web. So I'll leave Brilliant. it Brilliant. Very good. All right, John, we'll see you in Orlando and then uh, hopefully in December too. Yeah, guys. I uh, hope to see you next time. All right. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.